Open your Bibles to Psalm 12. Open your Bibles to Psalm 12. Psalm 12 is where we're going to be this morning. Well, there's many voices in our culture, as you well know. You can turn just about anywhere and know what anybody is thinking at any given moment. You can know what they had for breakfast. You can know just about anything about them. Whether you wanted to know it or not, you can find it out. We have a number of different platforms now. We have social media where everyone tells you what their favorite things are and what their least favorite things are. What they've eaten and pictures even of the food on their plate. You can see it. We have 24-hour news. You can turn on the TV and you can find out what is happening at this very moment. Every hour, there's something breaking. Both breaking news and something literally is breaking. Every, 24 hours. It's all over the place. You can see it anytime you want. There are endless amounts of podcasts. You can pull out your phone. You can get a news feed streamed right to your phone. You can listen to just about anything you want to whenever you want to. There are message boards that have been around since the dawn of the internet. You can go and find out what everyone is doing and thinking. There's a ton of things that you can find. Three billion people use online social media, and they spend an average, this is us, we spend an average of two hours every day sharing, liking, tweeting, and updating on all of those social media platforms. That means that around half a million tweets are shared every minute. Half a million every minute. Think about that for a second. With this incredible innovation of technology, how do we use it? Well, mostly we use it to tear everybody else down. That's mostly how we use it. In 2015, Pew Research surveyed 1,800 people and found that Twitter was a significant contributor to stress. Do you know why? It's, it's found that because it increased other people's awareness of other people's stress. It increased, increased my awareness of your stress. So as you hated your job and hated your boss and hated your neighbor and hated your situation in life and hated how much money or how little money you made and how much you didn't have and how little you did have, that increased my stress. And then I became stressed. And so as I became stressed, I started to vent about my stress on social media and down the hill, the snowball rolled until now we have this massive conglomerate of social media that is probably destroying our society. As we listen to the voices of the mob, our despair grows. David, in our passage this morning, finds himself in a similar situation where all the voices around him are tempting him to despair. So let's read our passage, Psalm 12, to the choir master, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. 
Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered. Because the needy groan. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we've read this word, that your word, as it is purified and pure, that it would purify us. That as we think about it, as we meditate on it, it would correct our thinking. It would, it would move us to the place where you want us to be. We can only do that by the power of your Spirit. And so we ask that you would not only help us to understand this passage, but also apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're not given any more specific information about this particular psalm other than it's a psalm of David, and then we're told that it is in accordance with some sort of tune, perhaps some sort of rhythm called the Shemineth, but we have really no idea what that is other than it's probably some sort of either musical or liturgical term. But what it does remind us of is that these psalms that are sitting before us are intended to be sung by a congregation. They're intended to be uh, catechized the church in some way. And so, unless there's a specific situation given for, let's say, David for this instance, then it probably doesn't do us much good to dwell on what was David going through at the time that would cause him to write this. Because in general, David is writing so that it is generally applicable across all audiences, including our own. His observations for this psalm are generally applicable even to a modern audience. So surely you can look at verse 8 and you can read there, vileness is exalted amongst the children of man. And you can say, I feel like, I feel like that's, that's here today. I'm looking around at our day, and, and I, I can really relate to that. A couple of weeks ago when I preached Psalm 9 and 10 together, I laid out the concept of a chiasm. And rather than rehash all of that, just by way of reminder, a chiasm is a passage where the beginning and the ending of the passage parallel one another. And then as we move forward, the second, to the, the, the second part of the passage and the second to the last part of the passage also parallel one another. And then eventually you get to the center of the, of the passage. And in most chiastic passages, the center of the passage is the main point. Rather than the end of the passage being the main point, like you would find in like the writings of Paul or something like that. Well, in our passage... Verse 1 and verse 8 are parallel to each other. 
And then verses 2 to 4 and 6 to 7 are parallel to each other. And then leaves, that leaves verse 5 as the main driving point of the passage, the center of the psalm that David, in this case, wants you to pay attention to. Now that happens to be, if you're paying attention, where God speaks in this psalm. So even if you just take a cursory glance at the passage, you'll see that verse 1 and 8, for example, both have that same phrase, children of man, in it. And both have similar content to them, where the godly have disappeared, the wicked prowl in verse 8. So you can see that kind of parallel that we're going to explore as we go through. Now there are three sections to this text that we're going to go through. And in each, I want us to feel what David is communicating by this psalm. So I want us to get the feeling. This first feeling that he communicates in verse 1 and verse 8 is that pervasive wickedness in society is the rule, not the exception. Pervasive wickedness in society is the rule, not the exception. Now for some time now, the Psalms have been getting progressively worse for the most part. We have seen David surrounded by enemies. He has been weeping on his bed because there's enemies all around. And even last week, Jeremy, as Jeremy preached in Psalm 11, he receives counsel from a counselor of some sort that tells him he needs to flee because the arrows of the enemy are coming. They're, the enemy is on the move. They're about to attack. And so, David, you need to get out, out of here. And I've pointed out several times that the Psalms are meticulously arranged. Now, each one stands on its own. You could read Psalm 12 on its own because it sort of is in isolation. But these Psalms have been put together so they make sense together. They flow together. And so Psalm 11 and Psalm 12 work really closely together. And I want to show you that. Psalm 11, verse 3. Just look right back at Psalm 11, verse 3. It's the counselor speaking to David. He says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And as Jeremy explained last week, the counselor comes to David. And he's in a little bit of a panic, it seems. And he says, David... If the fabric of our society, if the foundations of law and justice are torn asunder, what can the godly person do? Now think about that for just a second. David is put on the throne and his job is to execute the justice of God for the rest of society by enacting God's laws and enforcing God's laws. What happens when the wicked don't want to adhere to the laws of God? What happens when society's laws completely are torn asunder? What then do the godly, what can the godly person do when he is submitting to the rule and reign of God? What can he do? And David seems pretty relaxed about the whole deal, or at least that's the way I read it. He tells him, we trust in the Lord because God's still on his throne. So we continue to trust. But now notice in Psalm 12, Psalm 12, 1. Notice how that flows together. 
Well, the godly are gone. Vanished. Disappeared. There's a plea at the very beginning of this for the Lord to save. Because not only have the godly disappeared from among the children of man, but look in verse 8, parallel to verse 1 again, on every side the wicked prowl. Vileness is exalted. The image here is not only that the godly everywhere have been killed, though some may have been killed. It's that all the godly have been silenced. Why? Because the vileness of man is exalted. The rest of the world, in other words, cares very little for what the godly have to say. Because the voice that carries weight in the culture is the voice that exalts sin. Does this sound familiar at all? But you understand what the trouble is. Not merely... It's not merely is it the exaltation of sin, but that the exaltation of sin necessarily means the rejection of God. David's plea is for the Lord to save because the world has so rejected His rule and His reign over them that they will not listen to the words of the godly. The words of the ones who want to submit to His rule and His reign. They don't want to listen to those words anymore. The godly have disappeared not merely in number, though that's probably true too, but also in influence. So when the godly person speaks words of wisdom against the vileness that surrounds them, it either falls on deaf ears or the godly person ends up sounding like a dinosaur. Can you believe He or she would believe that? Come on. Marriage before sex? That's crazy. Those are outdated mores. You sound like my great-grandfather. I hope that as we're going through the Psalms, you're taking note of how pertinent they are to our own day and age. It seems as though David could have written this yesterday, doesn't it? Describing our current culture. Though the thought does have to occur to you at some point or another that David wrote this down sometime between the years 1011 B.C. and 971 B.C. That's a solid millennium even before Jesus and 3,000 years before our own day. How is it that he could write something like that and it seems so apt for someone standing in a church 3,000 years removed from David's day? The mistake that I think we've made, and this is particularly true, I think, for the so-called Bible Belt, is in assuming that we live in or that we're entering into a strange time. I've said that before from the pulpit, that we're, this is a strange time we live in. It isn't uncommon for people in churches throughout America to speak as though the changing tides in our country are signaling the return of Jesus. 
Now, let me be clear. Jesus can return right this second. He could return tomorrow. Or he could return in a thousand years. I don't know when that day is, and neither do any of you. That's up to the Father alone. But I can tell you that the marginalization of Christianity in recent years in America has been the norm throughout church history, not the exception. That what we're entering into is the norm and coming out of perhaps the exception. In fact, there are notable exceptions in church history where Christianity was mainstream. And by that, I just mean where every politician, as an example, was expected to uphold Christian values, at the very least, in public, even if he or she didn't privately hold those values. When it would be, ta- when it would be thought of as odd, if you didn't at least say publicly that you believe in God, even if privately you didn't. Where it would be thought of as odd if you didn't attend church, even if you didn't really believe what was going on there. And believe me, we had tons of that. We had lots of people that would come to church, and probably still do, especially in the South, have tons of people that will come to church even if they don't privately hold the values that are there. You might have no way of knowing otherwise. There was a time when the pastor's words held sway in the community as a whole. When people might say, well, the pastor did say that. Well, he is a pastor of a church, after all. One notable exception in church history might be the first 200 plus years of our country's existence. Benjamin Franklin, who was by no means a Christian, loved, revered the circuit preacher George Whitfield, had correspondence with George Whitfield. George Washington spoke of Christianity often as our national religion. In 1950, ABC, that is the American Broadcasting Company, The same ABC you're thinking of. Black circle, white letters, ABC. 1950. Used to broadcast the hour of decision. It was an hour or a half hour program featuring the sermons of Billy Graham hosted by Cliff Barrows, music guy. Can you imagine ABC Today broadcasting a sermon, whether on radio or TV, That called people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ exclusively? That's a day we've long forgotten. I'm convinced in this country, we probably, outside of just a work of God, we're not going back to. It's the exception. Yet even in the heyday of the first great awakening... 1740s, Jonathan Edwards preaching fire and brimstone, people coming to Christ left and right. It does need to be acknowledged that even some of the most ardent preachers of the gospel, even in the so-called glory days of the past, were privately slaveholders. 
So there was an entire constituency of people. Even on the days when we look back and go, those back there, those were the glory days, there's an entire group of people that would look back on those days and say, I wouldn't go back to those days if you paid me. In fact, it can't get any worse than those days. You had gospel preachers preaching repentance of sin, holding slaves. How could it get any worse than that? So when we look back at the good old days, so-called, we tend to view it through rose-colored glasses. They often look better than they actually were. And when we zoom in on the so-called godly, what we will find are areas of our lives. And if we did that now, we would do the same thing. We would find areas of our lives where at some level we have a complete and total rejection of the rule of God in our lives. Even everybody in this room, including myself. So David is here not merely pointing to not just that group over there that does bad things, that group over there is ungodly and has disappeared, but he's really talking about the overarching human condition. Condition of our hearts. And we'll see more of this in the coming week, next week actually, but in Psalm 14 where David says this in verse 2, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because Paul picks up on that in Romans 3 as describing the default nature of the human condition. Point being that, that, the da- that David is describing the disappearance of the voice of the truly godly from not only the town square, but also from the human heart. It shows us that the blatant rejection of the rule and reign of God has actually affected us all. We're all there. Because pervasive wickedness in society is the rule, not the exception. The second thing that I want you to see here is that the word of the Lord offers the only protection from sinful delusion. The word of the Lord offers the only protection from sinful delusion. Let's look at the parallels between verses 2 to 4 and 6 to 7. So verses 2 to 4 are about the way mankind uses his words. Whereas verses 6 to 7 is about the way the Lord uses his words and the the quality of those words. So first, let's look at verses 2 and 4. He says, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? See, the speech of the ungodly, as David describes it here, is based on lies. But notice... That he's not simply just saying that the things that they say are patently false. The sky is green and the grass is blue. It's not merely that. It's that what they're saying is, is not true in their heart. Though it's perceived as good coming out of their mouth, what is actually intended in their heart is false. And this is seen most clearly, he says, 
in flattery. Flattering words and a double heart they speak. Flattery is speaking literally with a double heart. It means you, you say one thing and you mean another. It's saying something complimentary maybe to someone else, but what you actually intend is the exact opposite. What you mean in your heart is the opposite. In the South, we have an expression. We all know what it really means. Bless your heart. It doesn't mean bless your heart. It means you're an idiot. Please stop talking to me. Now, that's what it literally means. But there are more serious versions of this. And we've all had people tell us that they love us, that they're really kind to us, to our face, and then that same person goes behind our back, tears us down, gossips about us, slanders us behind our back, though they tell us in person that they love us. And truthfully, we've probably all been guilty of that at one time or another But have you ever surrounded yourself with gossiping friends? Have you ever been in a church that was filled with constant backbiting, where the people always had negative things to say, either about the pastor or about the staff or about other members in the church or about the direction that the church is going? It seems like no matter what you did, every conversation ended up all the way back in that same spot where someone was being torn down for something. The thing that we often fail to consider is that when a person is willing to gossip to you about someone else, they're also gossiping to someone else about you. And to the gossipers, just as an illustration of how this double heart and double tongue type two-faced action can tear apart, to the gossipers, if a person is willing to listen to you, gossip, and isn't willing to stop you in your tracks and say, that's gossip. They're not willing to correct you. That person is not only entertained by gossip, they are also gossipers. So they take what you say and they spread it to other people and eventually works its way back around to the person you were originally talking about in the first place. Do you ever wonder why so much gossip makes its way back to you? It's because the nature of the tongue, the nature of gossip, is to destroy everything it touches. I heard somebody say one time, and I think this is true, that I've never seen a church torn apart by adultery, but I have seen a church torn apart by gossip. So David is painting this scene here of a world where everyone is in some way rejecting the rule of God in their lives, and the evidence that, it's, that that is true is in the way that they use their mouths. That you can spot the ungodly by the way they use their mouths. In verse 4, they say, our lips are with us. That's another way of saying, our lips belong to us. I have freedom of speech. I can say whatever I want to. Who can be our master? In other words, they have set themselves up as Lord of their own lives 
It's evident by the way they no longer bridle their tongue and they participate in all kinds of backbiting, slander, and tearing down in their two-faced ways. And the worst part about it is they think they're never going to have to pay for it. Who can tell us what to do? Our lips are with us. They're on our side. Yet Jesus reminds us in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That is terrifying. But look at the contrast between that and the words of the Lord in 6 to 7. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. God's words have been tested and have achieved a level of unsurpassed perfection. It's like they've been melted seven times over in a furnace so as to achieve the height of purity. There's nothing false about them. And His words have the ability to guard His people forever. Whereas the ungodly use their words to tear down and destroy, the words of God build up and protect. The Lord keeping His people, by the way, coincides perfectly with the entirety of the book of Psalms and in fact the rest of the Bible. But like in, Psalms, in Psalm 121, three, verses 3 to 8, it says this, He will not let your foot be moved, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. But it also comes to us in the New Testament where we see that the Lord keeps us through His Word. We see that in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. It says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Or how about Romans 15, 4-6? For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me be abundantly clear here to what I'm saying and what the Bible is teaching us. These words contained in this book are God's words. And only they offer protection from sinful delusion, especially the kind of sinful delusion that the world has fallen into. It's the only thing. The words of the Lord. These words encourage your mind to be renewed. They protect your heart from anger, from bitterness, from animosity, from despair. 
These words train your heart in righteousness. They stimulate your body to good works. They encourage your mind to be renewed by proper thinking. They train the Christian. This is what the word of God does in the life of a Christian. They train him or her in righteousness. The words of the Lord are not only pure, they purify whatever they touch. Tell me then, brothers and sisters, why is it so rare in our day to find a Christian who devotes his life to the study of God's Word? Why is it so common for a Christian's experience of God's Word to come mainly on Sunday morning in the sermon? If the Word of God is that which provides the Christian soul-satisfying nutrition, why is it so rare to find churchgoers that read it and even rarer to find churchgoers that understand it? Plenty of people will quote you Scripture and they'll rip it kicking and screaming out of context and apply it to situations that it does not apply to. That's not any better. In fact, in some cases, that's far worse. Because Christian, let me tell you, it is dangerous for you to walk through this life without regularly giving yourself to the study of the Bible. And if that's you, you hear me, you are in spiritual peril. And as the temperature of the world increases outside this building, there may be a day where you're not here anymore. Why is it so rare that we would devote our time to the study of God's Word and yet we are so well versed in the recent debates on social media and in the news? Why is that? Why is it that two hours of our day, on average, can be spent consuming some form of media, be it social or on the TV or the internet or something? Two hours. There might not be a better depiction in our culture of flattering lips and great boasts that say, who is master over us than what you will find when you turn on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or 24-hour news. Now, if you're, not, if you're one of those that says, I, I don't do social media, I don't do that whole thing, some form of entertainment or news that you consume. And 80% of it, at least, is a snapshot of sinful delusion, and we are so well-versed in it. You still wonder why during this whole coronavirus thing you're finding yourself more and more grieved, more and more depressed, more and more driven to despair? And perhaps our social media accounts are just heaping up for us judgment when Christ returns. 
Because our social media accounts and our TV use is proof that we had plenty of time to study the scriptures. We're choosing not to. But what do we find in scriptures in the scriptures when we devote ourselves to its study? Third thing that I want you to see, which is the main point that David is building towards in verse 5, the Lord is true to his word. The Lord is true to his word. Look at verse 5. This is God talking. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. This is the very center of the psalm, which is the point of the whole poem. And it's what the Lord intends to, it shows that the Lord intends to respond to the cries of his children. Notice that at the beginning of the psalm, the cry from David, the prayer is very short. Dispelling all myths that your prayer has to be long and verbose. He simply says, save, O Lord. I don't have time to pray. David prayed two words in Hebrew. Save, O Lord. That's the prayer from David. His petition is short, it's simple, it's to the point. He asks for the Lord to save. And we see in verse 5 that the Lord's intention is indeed to act to save his children who are distressed by the wickedness around them. But the reason the study of Scripture is vital for the Christian is because going through his word, we find something of crucial importance. Namely that God is true to his word. Now, the promise that we get in Scripture that the Lord will save is absolutely worthless if we can't trust the person making the promise. But when we go all the way back to Genesis 3, we find that as the man and woman sin and God is judging them and He's getting ready to kick them out of the garden He makes a promise to bring forward an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. And then we see him just a few chapters later begin to fulfill that promise in establishing Abraham and his family. So it becomes clear in the book of Genesis that that seed that he has promised to the man and woman are going to come through the seed of Abraham. And then he promises Abraham children and a nation and the kings are going to come from him. And by the time we get to the end of the book, we see that he begins to fulfill even that promise in Jacob slash Israel and the rest of his family. We see Jacob promise to Judah that the scepter will never depart from Judah And then we see a person from the tribe of Judah come about later on in King David and a further promise that, David, you will sit on the throne forever and your seed will never leave. And so we have yet another promise of a future deliverer that will come also from David's line. And ultimately, we see that king from David's line and from Abraham's line, the offspring that will crush the head of the serpent in no one other than Jesus Christ. The Lord is true to his word. And we see that first 
in the testimony of Scripture, and second, and most importantly, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The faithful study of the Scripture will continually point us to the person of Jesus as evidence that God is true to His Word. Now, I've said this before, and I I, want to repeat it again because we need it reiterated to us. We need it to sink in, especially as we read the Psalms. We need to understand that the day that David is looking forward to here, when the Lord would arise... Right? The Lord promises that I will arise is the day that you and I are currently living in at this very second. We are living in a day. Just think about this for just a second. We are living in a day where we can identify a time when the creator of the universe took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When he came to save his people from their sins, as Matthew tells us, we all in this building can identify a day when that happened. It's in our past. It's old news to us. In Christ The Lord has arisen, both figuratively and literally arisen. He has placed His people in safety. The safety for which His people longed. Freedom from sin. Safety from an eternity in hell. He has placed His people in safety. He has rescued the poor in spirit, the plundered, those who mourn and groan. He has sealed them for salvation. He has given them of His Spirit that they might not now utter lies against their neighbor, which David condemns in verses 2-4. to That's what His Spirit does in us, is it works against that carnal nature to do what David is saying is evidence that the godly have disappeared. God has actually done this now in us. He's put His Spirit in us that we might no longer boast of great boast and say who is master over us, but we now bend our knees by the very indwelling Holy Spirit that He's given to us. We bend our knees and we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He has done that In Jesus, that very same Spirit that He has placed in us is completely contrary to the fallen nature that David is identifying here in this psalm. God is true to His Word. He's done it in Christ. And we are evidence of that. Of course, He's not finished. He still has some promises that are still outstanding. He's promised to completely eradicate all evil from around us. To dwell with us as our God and we as His people on the new heaven and new earth where the curse of the fall is completely removed. 
So there are promises that are yet to be fulfilled. But we can trust in those promises because God has been faithful to all of his promises to this point. So that we have no reason to doubt in the still outstanding promises. So we can first recognize that the day David longed for is a day in which we live. And we can celebrate that. That this psalm is first evidence that God is true to His Word because I am here and He has given me of His Spirit. But then we can also say with David, looking into the future, come Lord Jesus. Save, O Lord. That we can look around at society around us and lament. That we long for Christ's return, that he would be the only king. There would not be any other elections. There would not even be any contenders. We can say with David, save, Lord. And by save, I mean that. The Word of God is going to continually remind you of these basic truths as it cultivates your heart to hope in God rather than to be thrown into despair. But then the question remains for all of us. Whose voice are you listening to? Because our despair manifested in the way we use our tongues even, will betray us. Gives away who we're really listening to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer is that you use your word to work its way into our heart that it might have a way of bolstering our confidence in both how true you are to your word and how much hope we can actually have in this day and age. I pray for us as Christians. As we come together under one roof to sing praises, to magnify your name, to confess sin, to read scripture, to hear from your word, that would have such an effect on our hearts that it would truly make the rest of the town blush at the blatant idolatry still resides in the children of man. I pray that we as a church community would be creatures of your word. Help us to desire it so much that we long for it. May it be evident in the way we use our tongues 
both with each other and in prayer, in words of encouragement, in words of uplifting words, in words of admonishment. We pray that you would take control of our mouths so that they don't boast great boasts, but that they boast of Christ who has done everything for us. In Jesus' name.